Welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. I'm excited for every interview, but I'm particularly excited for this one today because joining me is Dr. Taylor Patrick O'Neill. He's an assistant professor of theology at Mount Mercy University in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And most recently, he is the author of Grace, Predestination, and the Permission of Sin, a Thomistic Analysis published by the Catholic University of America. I received a publisher's review copy of this book, and I have to say it's really, really good. I learned a lot, and we're going to talk about some of the ideas in here with Dr. O'Neill. A lot of these ideas, I think, are important for Catholics to understand, and I would venture to say that many Catholics don't know that these ideas are not just acceptable in Catholic doctrine, but a proven part of Catholic dogmatic theology. So we're going to walk through a lot of that today with Dr. O'Neill. Dr. O'Neill, welcome to Creedal Catholic. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's uh, an honor to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here. I discovered you, I don't know, probably about a year ago. I I think I saw you on Twitter then and started following your work and saw that you had written this book. And as soon as I saw it, I thought, this is a book I want to get my hands on because this book is is an examination of what I think we can call, and correct me if any of this is wrong, I mean, you wrote it, but an examination of the intra-Thomistic debates about grace, predestination, and the permission of sin. The idea being, St. Thomas wrote about predestination. This is, and we'll talk about this, an accepted dogma and reality of the church. This is part of the way things are. But there were sort of refinements or uh, sort of internal debates within the Thomist school about exactly how grace and predestination work and how God is not implicated in sin. Because, of course, we can all agree that God's not implicated in sin, but exactly how he's not implicated, I think, is sort of the the point in contention there. So um, that's what your book is about. Uh, Tell me this. Why did you write this book? Because this seems to be kind of an under-researched area of modern Catholic theology. Yeah, um, it it goes back to um, I guess when I was uh, when I was still doing uh, my coursework for my master's degree, uh, a mentor of mine sort of um, kind of just pointed out to me one day, just in an informal conversation. Uh, he said, "I've been reading the Summa, and I was reading what Saint Thomas has to say about providence and predestination," and. Uh, he was shocked because he had never read it before. Wow. And he, he, he said, uh, uh, he's got to be wrong on this because he's saying that all things are governed by God's providence and the divine will. And I thought, uh, at this point I was already, you know, just starting to understand and, and, and study St. Thomas, but already sort of, uh, would have self-described as a Thomist and loved reading St. Thomas. And I thought, Oh, well, surely that's not, that's not right. And then I went and looked and I thought, Oh no, he does say that. And very explicitly, yeah. well, I guess St. Thomas must just be wrong on this, but I mean, I can't say that that easily, right? You know, I'm just, who am I? So I started studying it and thinking, okay, like how can I sort of understand where he went wrong from someone who, uh, you know, from other theologians, from others who have uh, uh, written commentaries on St. Thomas. And the more that I read about the commentaries and the nuances, the metaphysical nuances, the theological nuances of what St. Thomas held about providence and predestination, the more convinced I became <laughs> and I found myself uh, assenting to everything that he had to say in, in, in everything he had to say in the long run. So I started out trying to critique or understand how, where he went wrong and ended up sort of being converted. Yeah, I mean, I love that. It reminds me of a, a lot of stories of uh, people who, you know, set out to try to disprove the truth of Christianity or the Catholic church and find themselves asking to be baptized. So uh, yeah, that's, that's right. That's in many respects, a beautiful story. You know, I, I, uh, it resonates with my own story because I consider myself, and I've described this, uh, described myself to you this way privately, but I just I describe myself as a recovering Molinist, and we'll talk about what that what I exactly mean by that and what Molinism is, et cetera. We're going to dive into that, but 
you know, as someone who is a convert to the church and has close friends and family who are very serious about theology uh, and, and really, you know, hold up the ideas of Reformed Protestantism, which include many strong ideas about predestination, in some cases, divine reprobation in, in a sort of active positive sense, um, the, the ideas of John Calvin, etc. cetera. Uh, it's very easy to become Catholic and just sort of reject all of that and say, no, you know, Catholicism is a different way. We have free will. And while it's certainly true that we have free will, and, and we'll talk about that too, uh, it's too easy, I think, to throw out the baby with the bathwater and just say, yeah, we have free will, so so we don't have predestination, right? And so imagine my surprise. I did the series. I don't think I've told you this yet. I did a series last year with uh, my friend named Casey Chalk, who's a convert to Catholicism from Reformed Protestantism, and we we uh, we covered Tulip. Casey's written mm-hmm. for um, for called to communion, which I think is a, a, a site of your friend Brian Cross, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so uh, called to communion does a great job engaging in Catholic Reformed dialogue. And Casey has been involved in that website. So he was a great interlocutor to, to walk through the tulip, you know, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, et cetera. And, uh, and in our discussion on irresistible grace, we obviously talked about predestination a lot. And we talked about the, the, the ideas of the church with respect to this. And this was my first opportunity to really dive deep into what the church holds. And imagine my surprise, you know, similar to you when you were kind of setting out to prove Thomas wrong, I was reading um, something not, not quite as advanced as the Summa, but just from more, more of a textbook, right? The, uh, the Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma by Ludwig Ott. And it dives into predestination. And he says, I'll quote some of it here. God, by his eternal resolve of will, has predetermined certain men to eternal blessedness. And this is de fide. This is an article of faith. Uh, and Ott goes on to say, the reality of predestination is clearly attested to in Romans chapter 8, quote, for whom he foreknew, foreknew, he also predestined to be made conformable to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brethren. And whom he predestined, he also called, and who he called, he also justified, and who he justified, he also glorified. So he talks about that. He goes on to talk about how St. Augustine says that this belief in this predetermination or predestination, which is now being zealously defended against new errors, has always been held by the church. And goes on to talk about this now, and we talked about this on the podcast uh, when we went through Tulip, right? But there's there is this the sort of discussion between whether or not this predestination is sort of independent of foreseen merit or based on foreseen merit, et cetera. And I think that that is um, connected to the De Auxilis controversy, et cetera. But I think I'll start there with you, right? I've talked a lot. I want to hear more of your thoughts here. But to a Catholic who would say predestination is not a Catholic idea, uh, what would you say? We've just explained how. That's wrong, but I guess you would say, or I guess I would ask you, tell me more about why that's wrong. What does a Catholic need to know about predestination? Is this actually a Catholic idea? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, you mentioned just a minute ago that you you think of yourself as like a recovering Molinist, and, right. and we'll unpack a little bit more what that means, I guess. But um, I think that's true of almost everyone. Um, I think that uh, I oftentimes joke. Uh, jo- I oftentimes joke that there's a sort of <laughs> global Molinist conspiracy, but it, obviously it's a joke. But um, the the sort of nugget of truth is that uh, we all, I, I think, to a large part, and we could get into you know all sorts of causes for this, but I think at least one of the big causes for the widespread um, rejection or confusion over the doctrine of predestination among Catholics is that we are aware that John Calvin held a, an erroneous doctrine about predestination. But as you said, we, we've swung too far in the other direction, right? So we went to the opposite extreme and, um, that is erroneous in its own way. Um, so yeah, I mean, what is predestination? Well, um, predestination is a subset of providence and providence 
means God's governance of the world, of the universe. So um, we're all aware, right, as Catholics, that as, as Christians, that the universe isn't a meaningless series of random events, right? We see that God is like an author um, writing a story, and that story is the story of the universe as it unfolds. And uh, scripture attests to this, right? Talks about God ordering things, God ordering all things to the good. So in a sense, um, God is in control, right? As uh, sort of a pithy way of putting it. Um, And so uh, God is in control, and certainly that includes our salvation. Um, In other words, God isn't passive to our salvation. That would be sort of a very egregious heresy um, that God is sort of, uh, passive, non-active, not in charge of, not causal for our salvation. Okay, so God does cause our salvation. Um, and really, that's what predestin- predestination means in its most uh, simplest terms. It means God's active role in bringing to salvation those who shall be saved. Now, let me unpack that a little bit. Uh, one of the things that I've really appreciated is I've learned more, especially through some of your work about the church's teaching on this, is how much we place an emphasis on God's sovereignty. And that's something that I appreciate from my Protestant friends who are deeply reformed and deeply thoughtful and have studied their theology as they, to them, it is all about God's sovereignty, right? It, it is recognizing that God is the king of the universe and that, you know, as, I, as I'm lifting this pencil up right now, this is not happening outside of God's providence, right? And I think this is borne out by scripture. When we look at, for example, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 29, when we're told that not a single sparrow falls to the ground without, without the Father's will, right? Yeah, yeah. And we and we know that you know every every hair on our head is numbered. Now that's not a if we take this like um, sort of deistic personalism idea that God is just like a really powerful person like figure up in heaven. That's very hard to to uh, to fathom to comprehend. Uh, but if we take this sort of classical theist idea, right, that God is the the first cause, the first mover, etc., then it becomes a lot more. I mean, maybe maybe comprehensible is the wrong word. This is still certainly yeah. outside of our comprehension, but we can maybe slightly better understand how God can be this active in, in every single movement that happens throughout creation. And if he's active in me lifting up this pencil and putting it back down on my desk, then he must also be certainly very active in the very act of my salvation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're exactly right. I think that we often have a two... Um, I mean, not intentionally, but we might even say a too idolatrous understanding of God. And um, what I mean by that is exactly what you say, this sort of um, really strong um, super type creature who has a lot of powers, but really still exists within the universe and is affected by the universe as much as he affects it. Uh, Just like creatures, right? I'm affected by the environment in which I find myself, just like I act upon it. Um, But the classical conception of God is not just that he's a really sort of powerful man in the sky, right? God is the fundamental source, the ontological source of all being and all act. God is not a being, right? God is pure being. God is pure act. So to say that God isn't behind all of the causes in the universe would be to say that there's a cause outside of causality, right? This is what Aristotle and Aquinas mean when they talk about God as the prime cause, right? Everything exists only insofar as it participates in God's existence. Well, 
that's it's also true then that everything that causes and acts only does so by participating in in God's act. So it would be fundamentally impossible to think about something happening, something causing in the universe and causing an effect and having that happen apart from or compartmentalized uh, from God. It just would be metaphysically impossible. Right. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Let's dive into some of the 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 nuts and bolts of this idea in Catholic theology. I do want to talk a little bit about just sort of John Calvin and, and maybe how we can better understand and, and dialogue with Reformed Protestants. We can save that for closer to the end of the podcast. For right now, I'm wondering if we can dive into the the De Auxilis controversy between the ideas of Domingo Bañez and uh, Molina. Uh, and, and can we talk about that a little bit? Maybe let's start with the Bañezian side. And to do that, we might we might benefit from talking a little bit about Thomas's position in the Summa first, because obviously, as a good Dominican, Bañez is very informed by the Thomistic ideas. So let's talk about the sort of Thomistic Bañezian position first, and then we'll dive into Molinism. Yeah, so, um, yeah, great. So as I mentioned, predestination is a subset of providence. In the Summa, providence comes first, and then the next question of predest- is predestination, and obviously that's um, not without good reason. So what St. Thomas says is that since God is not a good, but is pure goodness, and since all of our movement towards eternal life is the effect of grace, that everything that we do, which reaches out towards our salvation, that we do participate in, we believe this as Catholics, right? It's not just something done to us, but something we participate in, faith and works. But all of that is only possible with grace. And we can do no good apart from God, because God is the good. And so St. Thomas is following St. Augustine here on uh, strongly rejecting the heresy of Pelagianism, uh, which just essentially asserts that you don't need power from God in order to be saved. God is a good, Jesus is a good role model, and we follow Jesus under our own powers. And so um, he teaches us how to save ourselves, essentially. Um, And of course, St. Thomas says no. So, okay, so those who are saved are only saved by this gratuitous grace. It's not owed to us. We cannot, strictly speaking, merit sanctifying grace. It's a gift. It's a, it's a gift from God. No man is owed to participate in the divine nature. That's uh, you know clear. So what St. Thomas says is that insofar as we participate in our own uh, salvation, it must be the case that God is already giving us the grace and ordering us and moving us towards that salvation. So St. Thomas famously says that predestination is God's movement his election of the saved to heaven. And it causes that election causes all of the, the good acts and the, the possession of the, the theological virtues, which allow us to enter into heaven. He famously says that election is anti, anti previsa merita, meaning it's before merit, before the foreseeing of merit. Um, And what he means by that is that it isn't that God looks out at the universe and goes, Oh, there's bill. I'm going to foresee how Bill would act given a certain degree of grace. And I will foresee whether he would use that grace well or not. And then I will make sure that he's numbered among the elect. The reason St. Thomas says that's a, a bad way of looking at things is that it makes God passive. In other words, the difference between Bill acting well in response to grace doesn't really have anything to do with God. It doesn't really have anything to do with the grace. It's something in Bill. 
But St. Thomas is essentially asking us to consider how could it be the case that Bill would respond well to grace apart from God, apart from God's causality, apart from grace itself. And he says, well, that's fundamentally impossible. That would mean some people are better than others, even though that being better has nothing to do with grace or God or the good. So he says, insofar as one soul is better than another, insofar as one soul participates better with grace, it must be because God has, even before seeing how they would act, caused them to respond well to grace. So in other words, all of our good actions are the effect of predestination rather than its cause. Now, I want to come back to that because I have a question for you there, but I also want to you know, go back to what you said about three minutes ago when you were saying that for with with, uh, with uh, with respect to our universal destination or our eternal destination, I should say, that none of us is owed heaven. None of us is owed the beatific vision. And I think this is actually an important point that also gets assumed very frequently, right? We just think like it is unrighteous. It is unfair. It is unjust if God doesn't get me to heaven, mm-hmm. right? Or if God gets that person to heaven and not me. Um, but we have to remember that we are creatures. We are not uh, we are not the creator. We are the creatures, right? So like you look outside your window, does, does that rock deserve heaven? Does that tree deserve heaven? Right. And so I think that's an important thing to, to think about. Uh, I heard that in your, uh, your debate actually on the said Contra podcast, um, when you mentioned that and I was like, yeah, that's, I don't know if I've ever thought about it quite that way before, but that's a really good point that we aren't owed heaven. And that kind of changes the whole grounding of the discussion, I think on predestination, right? Because predestination, we often have this visceral reaction to, right? Like, Really, God wills that some men be in, be saved, and he, he acts on that and gives them the efficacious grace to be saved, but not others. Is that really how it works? But if we first ground that with, yeah, we're not owed heaven in the first place, I think it really kind of changes the terms of the debate. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that it's it's sort of doubly true that that uh, humans are not owed the beatific vision. Uh, it's true first just on the level of, of uh, nature. Um, and I think part of where this gets, uh, why this is somewhat confusing or where it gets obscured is that I think sometimes we have an inadequate understanding of what heaven is. Heaven is not earthly paradise. Um, we tend to think of heaven as Eden, Um, And what the Christian tradition says is actually, say Thomas says, heaven, the beatific vision, isn't just a sort of garden of earthly delights. Um, That's a perfect state of human nature. But actuality, in actuality, um, because of the incarnation and death of Christ, uh, what humans are called to is a participation in the divine nature to participate in the inner life of the Trinity. Well, that's infinitely beyond human nature, even non-fallen human nature. So that's totally gratuitous by its very nature. It it cannot be owed to us. And then you add in the fact that we have fallen. So we're not even uh, at the level of perfect human nature. So we have inherited original sin as as a race, as a a species, and um, we all personally sin. And so even in our individual personal lives, we nonetheless, we reject even living according to our human nature. So we're not totally depraved or anything like that, but we have certainly placed ourselves in opposition to God by choosing lower goods, by choosing things that are not God. And so... um, Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That is helpful to remember because it helps to divest ourselves of what I would say is a heretical notion that we are somehow owed heaven. And unless you go way out of your way to um, 
explicitly reject the ticket, it's like the default. It's not the default at all for us to participate in the divine nature. And so I, I do want to come back to this, to what you described or how you described the sort of Thomist Banyesian position, broadly speaking, uh, with the predestination being independent or prior to foreseen merit, et cetera. So our good acts become effects rather than causes of our predestination, right? Because if they were causes of our predestination, in a way, I think you kind of tend towards Pelagianism, right? Because you're you're acting and then the acts that you do cause God before you do them to recognize that and then save you, right? So so that I think is potentially a problem. Um, uh, well, not a, not a problem with the um, with the Banyesian position, but a problem with the other position, the Molinist position. Yeah. But, l- but let's dive into the Molinist position a little bit. I describe myself as a recovering Molinist. You said that it is true of a lot of us, maybe all of us. So let's talk a little bit about the Molinist position, what that says, and then we can kind of dive into the problems that each claims about the other. Yeah. So uh, Molinism is named after Louis de Molina. Um, he was a contemporary of this other theologian we've been talking about, Domingo Bañez. Domingo Bañez was a Dominican. He, um, a Spanish Dominican. He uh, obviously is trying to uh, defend and further articulate the position of St. Thomas that we just laid out. Molina disagrees strongly with Bañez. Molina is uh, a Jesuit. And so the Jesuits in general tend to follow Molina's view. The Dominicans tend to follow Bañez and they debate, debate, debate until the church actually sets up its own congregation just to deal with this question, which lasts uh, over the course of several pontificates. Um, What Molina argues is that um, one of the interesting things about Molinism and Thomism is that they don't disagree, at least not explicitly, according to Molina, they don't disagree about the notion of predestination. Um, nor does Molina want to say that he's saying that God merely foresees who will save themselves and so just follows along with that. Um, rather, the primary difference is the mechanism by which uh, predestination works. So, so if I can Mon- jump in here real yeah. quick. So Molina is yeah. not saying, certainly not saying that predestination is not a thing. He acknowledges predestination is true. It, it is real. Absolutely. Yep. But, but he's also not saying that this is simply, he, he's not falling into the Pelagian trap of saying that people save themselves and then God foresees who saves themselves. Is that right? That's right. Now, I will... As I often argue, I think Molina um, fails at setting out uh, in 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 completing what he sets out to do. Sure, I don't clearly Molina does not see himself as a Pelagian, nor would he want to um, you know <laughs> ever to adopt a heresy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so what does Molina articulate? How is he different from Bonyes? Well, Bonyes um, sort of famously puts forth this idea that um, that God moves. And this is in St. Thomas, too. It's not just Bonyas. Um, that God moves the will to will. In other words, that God causes us to freely choose things. This is how grace works, um, especially actual graces, which lead us to do a salutary or a meritorious action. So in other words, I can't, not only can I not act apart from God, but I especially can't act in a 
good way, in a graced way, without grace, without God, without God's causality. Okay, so God can cause me to do something, and I will do it infallibly, but because God is the architect of our will, when God causes me to do something, I do it freely. I participate in God's action. It's not like God is forcing me to do it, but nonetheless, God does infallibly cause me to do it. Molina is beginning with the premise that this is impossible, that God cannot work directly on the will. Even now, it, God has, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Is his problem with that that he thinks it violates free will? He thinks that if God moves the will to act in such a way, and this is important, I think, tell me if it is, that he does so mm-hmm. infallibly, that yeah. that is the violation of free will? Is that the problem that Molina says? Yes, that's right. He, uh, he, 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 he cannot see how something happening infallibly would not make it necessary. And if it's necessary, then free will would be precluded. And St. Thomas would agree with that, right? So he's beginning with that premise. Okay, so if he's beginning with that premise, then what that means is that he, he has to articulate his understanding of providence and predestination. But presupposing, again, this principle that God cannot work directly upon the will. Okay, well, if that's the case, then how does God govern the universe. How is it the case that God, for example, um, uh, let's say God has uh, sort of in the divine mind and the divine plan for me to meet person X and person X will introduce me to Y idea and that will lead to my conversion. Well, how does God bring that about if he can't <laughs> cause person X and, and me to meet? Well, what Molina says is God can manipulate or set up the circumstances so my, my will is kind of um, sealed off, hermetically sealed off from divine causality. Otherwise, it would obliterate my will if God were to act directly upon it. But what God can do is set up the external influences around me and make sure that I am in the, the correct circumstance so that I freely choose what God would want me to do. So you can see it's a kind of external influence on the will rather than the internal causality of Banya. So if God wants me, a famous example, um, uh, uh, Thomas P. Flint is a, a, a Molinist. He uses this example in his book. Um, if, if God wants Cuthbert to buy St. Cuthbert to buy an iguana, he can't just cause St. Cuthbert to freely choose to buy an iguana. But what he can do is look out at St. Cuthbert, even before Cuthbert is created, and recognize that given what kind of fellow St. Cuthbert is, I know that if I were to put him in just this circumstance, he would freely choose to buy an iguana. So if, if I want to uh, create a universe and order a universe where St. Cuthbert buys an iguana, I'll make sure that I put him in circumstance X or whatever, and then he will do it. So I, I have so many questions based on this, and it's all it's <laughs> yeah. all fascinating. But uh, one thing that I, uh, one term I didn't hear you use there is middle knowledge, which is, uh, as I understand it, the mechanism by, maybe not, maybe mechanism is the wrong word, but it, it's one of these concepts that's involved in Molina's solution. And as I understand it, he it is that aspect of God's omniscience, his all-knowing uh, character, that allows him to foresee all the possible eventualities that would lead to X solution. So he, so that's his his middle knowledge is what allows him to see all the things that would put Saint Cuthbert in a position to buy the iguana. Do I have that correct? Yep, that's absolutely right. So it's called middle knowledge because it exists between the pre-volitional knowledge of God. In other words, God knows his own divine nature. And God's divine nature is to exist. And so that's necessary. God is necessarily God, right? And so God knows that about himself. It exists, middle knowledge exists between that and then the knowledge that God has 
which is sourced in his own will. So God knows that he's going to, I don't know, have a thunderstorm sweep into this place on just this day or whatever. And, and that perhaps is caused directly by God because those are natural causes. They're not volitional causes. It's so not a violation no, of the will. There's no violation of, of freedom there. But in the middle between those two are the things that are not necessary, like the divine nature, but also cannot be known by God's knowing that he's going to will it. So it's a kind of, yeah, it's a kind of in-between place. He can foresee what would happen in circumstance C, but he can't change that this would happen in circumstance C. So in other words, whatever he wants to happen, according to his middle knowledge, he, he can only affect in a sort of indirect external way because he is really passive to something within the will, right? So he can make it the case that Cuthbert buys an iguana, but he can't make it the case that Cuthbert buys an iguana in all circumstances or in any circumstances because it's the circumstances which are causing Cuthbert to buy the iguana and not God, not the divine will. So let's back up now to Banyesianism. I have plenty of questions on Molinism as well that we can get to, but backing up to Banyesianism, as I understand uh, what you said, and, and you really only cover the De Auxilis controversy briefly in your book because it's mostly about the sort of intra-Thomist uh, things, but as I understand the Molinist position and, and its position uh, about Banyesianism, the concern from Molina and his disciples is this violates the will, the freedom of the mm -hmm. will, which is why he devises this you know, middle knowledge of scientia media to say God does not act, um, I guess, I, I don't know what, I, I might be using metaphysical terms, you know, incorrectly here, but, you know, sort of, he, he does not act interiorly on the will, but exteriorly. He sort of brings about yep. the conditions for the will to act in the way that he wants the will to act, but he doesn't do it by sort of inserting himself into the volition, volitional process, if you will. Um, yep. So, I guess to sort of defend the Bunyazian position or clarify it against that claim of moldism, what, why or how does it preserve the freedom of the will? Because what I struggle with, with the Bunyazian position, and I do tend to think this is correct. So cards on the table, but what I do struggle with, and it's, it's, I think just a, a, you know, possibly just a mystery, although we can, we can try to understand it better is how God's grace can be resisted while also being infallible, right? Because the, the reformers on the Protestant side use this term, uh, irresistible grace. It's, it's one of the the uh, letters of the acronym TULIP, right? And so irresistible grace is always, you know, basically God's grace is always efficacious, right? Because God brings about what he intends to bring about and the human will cannot resist it. So any notion of free will is rejected by the, uh, by the, by reformers like Calvin, for example, and Luther. So how is it that the, the that we can preserve freedom of the will while having any grace be infallible and ha you know, have it bring about the what, what God intends to bring about, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it's a key question. Um, yeah, so I think um, the best way to uh, think about this or to begin thinking about it at least is to recognize that St. Thomas is, when he's talking about necessity and contingency, he is wanting to um, understand how human actions exist in their nature. So when he's talking about something being infallible, he, he's not saying that that action is happens necessarily as we've, as we've already noted. Okay. Well, how is that possible? Um, 
one of the things that St. Thomas uh, does to articulate this is, is essentially to give us a bit of an unpacking about what, what is the will in the first place and what is free choice. The will is an inclination to the good, right? It is, uh, he calls it the, the intellectual appetite. So it's sort of flows from the intellect and is a, a reaching out towards the good. What St. Thomas says is that the will then is an appetite or an inclination towards the good as such, towards goodness itself, not this good or that good, not food or, or a certain movie or whatever, just goodness as such. Okay. So St. Thomas says that if the will is ordered towards goodness as such, that means that its choice of any limited good is always contingent. Why is that? Well, because the will could not be, would not be compelled towards some limited good. A limited good can be seen by the intellect as being good. It can, it can see it as uh, not the good that I want in this moment. It can see a good as something that's actually not good for me. I mean, I don't like eating broccoli. I know intellectually that it's good for me, but my will is always you know, moving me away from eating broccoli. Why? Because I'm perceiving broccoli as actually something that in this moment is not good for me. Right. Or, or like, you know, I think uh, an example that resonates with me, tell me if it's a bad one, but you know, I think exercising, running on a treadmill is a good thing to do. But yeah. if you have an injury to your foot, it's not going to be a good thing for you in that moment. So it's a limited good because it's not, it's not, I mean, I guess the opposite is universal good, right? It's not good at all times in all places. And you can have too much running on a treadmill too, right? So that would be a, yeah. a limited good. That's right. So every limited or particular good has a certain time, a certain place and a certain degree, right? So you can pursue a good too much or you can pursue a good at the wrong time. That isn't possible, of course, for infinite goodness, for goodness itself. Okay. So the will is always contingent by nature in regard to any limited or particular good. It, it retains the potency, to use Aristotelian terms, the will always retains a potency to choose against a limited good by its very nature. Okay. So what St. Thomas is saying, what Bonius is saying, is that when we do good, we must be first caused to do good by God right? Nothing can cause apart from the universal cause, and certainly no good can come about other than from the good, which is God. Okay. So when God moves me to perform some good action, I retain the potency to choose against it. In other words, there is a distinction between me being moved to cause necessarily and being moved to cause contingently. One retains potencies to have chosen otherwise and the other doesn't right so if i drop a rock the rock falls to the ground necessarily it, it does not have any potency in itself in any powers that would allow it to have done otherwise right but when i am moved by god's grace to say go to confession it's within the very nature of my will to choose against that okay so it's certainly not necessary. It's not ontologically or metaphysically necessary that I perform any particular good action. But when God moves me to perform that action, I will do it. I will infallibly do it precisely because of the simplicity and efficacy of the divine will, which does not fail, which cannot be frustrated by creatures. If God actually wills something, it happens. God is omnipotent. 
Okay. So I do something infallibly. It will always be the case that I will have performed that action, but I did not lose in performing that action the potency to have done otherwise. It would have been truly possible in relation to myself and secondary causes for me to have done otherwise. I just didn't. Okay. So in other words, I think a helpful way of thinking about this is someone who, um, let's, okay. So, so, uh, let's say you have two men sitting one of them is a man who has full functional power in his legs and can stand. The other is, um, let's say, has some um, injury to his legs and cannot stand. Both of them are performing the same action, but they're performing the action in a metaphysically distinct way. One of them sits necessarily and the other one sits contingently. It could be otherwise in one case and it couldn't be otherwise in the other case. But both of them are performing the same action, right? So when God wills for me to do something from the traditional Thomistic or Banesian position, it will happen infallibly because the divine will is always fulfilled. But the divine will, as St. Thomas says, is fulfilled even in, the divine will stretches even into the mode of fulfillment. In other words, God can will something to happen necessarily, or he can will for something to happen contingently. So in relation to me and the causes around me, it's contingent. It could have been otherwise. In relation to the divine will, nothing is contingent, right? Nothing happens apart from the divine will. I mean, that's just a logical absurdity. So I, I realize that's sort of, um, I don't know, hopefully that's at least somewhat helpful at the beginning, at least to understand how something could be infallible, but also contingent. No, that, that does, it does clarify things. I mean, I, I think it's, it's still hard to understand right and i just think you know if, if we have this movement on our wills by god or god moves our wills to act a certain way and he does so infallibly what is the practically speaking what is the distinction between that and us having no free will right and, and i take your point that in the one instance we have no other potency right we we cannot but do the necessary act and the other one it's a contingent act so we have other options in front of us even if we never fail to not take advantage of those options. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And, and, and the difference though, I mean, the important difference is that I think we, we become the only way that we don't think about the natures of actions, right? So we just think about the consequences. So we go, oh, well, God moved me to do X and I did X, therefore it must be necessary. Well, no, we have to look more at what was X. Is X the kind of action that I can participate in freely or is it not? right? So if God wills for me to fall off a cliff, <laughs> I'm going to fall off the cliff, but I did that necessarily. I had no other option, right? I couldn't participate in my own falling off the cliff, right? I mean, my body is, but I'm not volitionally participating in it. But other kinds of actions, right? God can move me to freely will this particular action. So if it were the case that something were happening infallibly and necessarily, I couldn't possibly be said to participate in it volitionally, right? It would be a non-human action. It would be something happening to me, but not something I'm participating in, right? When it's the case that something is ontologically contingent, that means I could have chosen against it. And the fact that I don't, and that I choose the good, and I participate with God's grace, means now it's a human action. It's a moral action. It's a spiritual action. And that's why those kinds of actions can be meritorious for eternal life or demeritorious, right? Leading Wait, us so, away. So I think that was a really important point. Can you repeat that one more time? Because I, I don't want this to get lost in the scuffle. And I think this is the first time I've heard it phrased that exact way. But can you repeat what you just said? 
Yeah. So if an if if a movement, if God were to move us to do something in a way where, which was necessary that did not retain within us the potency to have acted otherwise, then it wouldn't be a human act. It wouldn't be a moral act, right? It, it wouldn't be something that would permit us to gain merit or to lose merit towards uh, towards the beatific vision. When it's contingent, that's precisely what provides the grounding for our participation in the action. For our free ascent to saying, yes, I'm doing this precisely because I'm willing myself to do it along with God, right? Um, so that's precisely the grounding for, uh, the, for moral choice and for spiritual choice, right? So um, God works on us as a primary cause, but we participate in what he moves us to do. That's the difference between us and, say, um, a painter and a paintbrush, right? Yeah. The paintbrush is truly causing its action, but not volitionally. Mm-hmm. But when God moves me, God doesn't, God doesn't cause me to do X. I mean, that's not technically the best way to put it. Let's say X is going to confession, which I cannot do apart from God's grace. Okay. God doesn't cause me to go to confession. I think a better way of putting it is that, uh, I mean, that's true, but a better way of putting it is God causes me to will myself to go to confession. God causes the free and contingent movements of my will. I love that. Thank you for repeating that. I think that makes things a lot clearer for me and hopefully is beneficial for listeners to understand as well. I mean, if we were just puppets, right? Puppets move necessarily because the puppet has no volition, no will of its own to say, no, I'm not going to you know, wiggle my hand or, or nod my head, et cetera. The puppet's just the puppet, right? And so if we were just puppets, how could we participate in our own sanctification. If we instead have our wills moved by God contingently, we have other options in front of us despite the fact that, you know, that God does will uh, will our actions infallibly. Um, that is how we can actually participate. That is how those things can be meritorious. That is how those things can contribute to our sanctification. So I, I really I really like that clarification. I'm really glad you mentioned that. Thank you. Let's talk about M- Molina real quick. So mm-hmm. Molina's interest is in preserving the freedom of the will. I mean, I think he he really had an issue with some of what we just, what we've just been talking about. Right. I mean, how is it, how is it the case that the will is preserved if God's grace can act infallibly, if it can always be efficacious, but what do you see as the shortcoming? Maybe, I mean, I'm sure there are several. What do you, what do you see as the major shortcoming with the uh, Molina's position? Yeah, I think <clears throat> the, 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 the most sort of succinct way and, and hopefully it doesn't sound too flippant because Molina's position has a certain degree of um, internal coherence and um it's certainly made in good faith and it's 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 a nuanced position um it's not something that should just be sort of flippantly rejected um however i think ultimately it is metaphysically uh untenable uh and the reason i say that is this that it can't be the case that god is passive to anything uh well why do i say that well because God is pure act and everything in creation is radically contingent upon God. The idea that God could somehow create something which he himself cannot govern, which is outside of his domain and sovereignty is just contrary to basic principles of classical theism. Um, And in regard to the moral and spiritual life, it raises what I think to be a an ultimately Pelagian position. Uh, 
which is this, um, and this is sort of one of the, the common objections to Molina, is, is this, that if it's the case that God can't move the will, but can only see what the will would do in certain circumstances, then the distinction between those who participate well with grace and those who don't is really pretty compartmentalized from God's own causality. There's something in Peter, which God himself is not uh, governing or causing, which makes him accept grace when Judas doesn't. And so it's difficult, and in fact, I would argue impossible then, to see how that would... um, how does that go with St. Paul saying, it is not we who distinguish ourselves, but God who distinguishes us? In other words, everything is attributable to grace and to God's motion within us. We don't distinguish ourselves. There's nothing in me that makes me better than someone else other than the love of God, which comes from God, the grace of God. And Molina actually says in certain places, he says, it is possible for one man to do more with less grace than another. He says Judas could have received more grace and Peter less, and Peter made better use of that grace. And to say that, I think, is to fundamentally miss what grace is and to fundamentally miss how God is the cause of all goodness, the source of all goodness. There is no good that exists in anything which isn't primarily and antecedently being willed by God. That's remarkable. So, I mean, it sounds like even though Molina tries to rescue the will, he does so at the expense of cheapening God's sovereignty because he he then tends to say, and in fact does say, that even with less grace from God than another man has, this man can do more good. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think the 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 primary error here is um, is that Molina just sees divine causality and human freedom as competitive, and um, it's it's easy to uh, see that in a certain sense to think that way, but it misses how transcendent God's causality is. Mm-hmm. God is the creator and architect of our will. It is not beyond God's ability to move us in a way where we are freely choosing something. That's just to deny a kind of sovereignty and power to God, which he would have to have if he were truly omnipotent. And I think that's a really good point to remember as well, because in the ontological order of things, God is not simply first, he he is, right? And so he's He's not the first thing that, that ever existed. He is... He is the thing that has always existed and, and never had a beginning. Uh, and so, again, going back to this idea, you know, he's not a giant superhero up there. He's not, I sometimes use the term celestial Santa Claus, right, somewhat flippantly, but he's not a celestial Santa Claus who's playing billiards uh, and, and sort of has this infallible ability to make every billiard shot he wants to, but rather he can act in, uh, in ways that can make divine causality and human freedom non-competitive when Molina says they clearly are. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's easy to miss this, but when we miss it, it can only be because we're doing exactly what you're saying. We are picture thinking God. We're thinking of God as another cause within the universe. And it is truly the case, right? That um, you and everyone around me and every other cause in the universe cannot act upon my will in the way that God can. And so it's easy to put God into that same category as everything else. What I mean by that is that nothing can make me will something freely. Someone can torture me, 
uh, and make it such that I end up giving up some information, even though I really don't want to, um, they can coerce me. You could, uh, you know, grab my hand and force me to write something that I don't want to write. And those would be forcing my body to do something, but no one can directly change or move the will. No secondary kind of cause, no creature. Um, because the will is an interior principle. The only one that can move my will volitionally is me. It's my will. So if we're thinking of God as another cause or as another creature, then we would go, oh, well, Bill and Tom can't move my will directly. So of course God can't, but God is not just another cause, right? God is holding me in being at each and every moment. If God ceases to hold me in being, I will cease to exist in the very next second. So God is, doesn't work <laughs> the same way as a cause as other creatures around me. Because God is the architect of my will, because God is sustaining my will in each and every second, he can work interiorly on my will. Nothing else can do that. But God is my creator and my the thing that sustains me in being. So, of course, if God is upholding my free will in this moment, God can also move my free will in a way which nothing else can. Yeah, beautifully said. Um, I, I told you I'd try to wrap up at 45 minutes. I've already busted that time slot. I was gonna, yeah. I was gonna ask you some questions on uh, sort of uh, comparing the traditional Thomistic uh, views of this with, for example, John Calvin's. Um, we can maybe save that for another day if you'd be willing to come back on. I would love to have you back on to talk specifically about that because I, I have a real interest in sort of Catholic Reformed um, theology and how to understand the nexus between those two and the divergences. So if you wanna come on, I'd love to have you on. Um, but I, I will ask you this as a final closing point. These ideas can sound pretty esoteric. Uh, the, the Catholic layperson can sometimes think, how does this apply to me? What difference does this make in my walk with God and my journey towards sanctification? So what would you say? What, what is the practical takeaway from this? Why does any of this matter, to put it pithily? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's very conceptual in a certain sense. The reason why I think it matters and, and why I think it actually matters quite a bit is that I think this view is necessary for the spiritual life and purification and um, progress towards heaven, towards beatific vision. And I think that it's this vision, which is presupposed, this understanding of grace and free will, which is presupposed by all of the mystics, all of the contemplatives, um, all of the great books that we should all be reading, whether it's John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, you know, St. Catherine of Siena, et cetera, all the great um, spiritual works. They all are rooted in the idea that Grace and movement towards sanctification is a, uh, a a further and further recognition that apart from God, we are nothing. That whatever good we have is God's good, and apart from God's good is just shadows and nothingness and the, the illusions um, which sin uh, is, right? Sin is not its own thing. Sin is just a kind of lie. Um, and so uh, Molinist... Um, the Molinist definition of grace just um, doesn't provide the spiritual grounding for um, the abandonment to divine providence for the immense humility, I think, needed in the spiritual life. So in contemplating um, the fact that grace and our good acts are owed 
entirely to God. We participate, but only because God moves us to participate. It opens up, uh, up for us a sort of vista whereby we can begin to at least reach out towards true humility and go, God, every good thing that I have is from you. And I just want to abandon myself entirely to you instead of thinking about, well, um, you know, uh, thank you for putting me in the right circumstance so that I did more with less grace than you gave to my neighbor or something like that. Right. It's, it's, um, yeah, so I think it's crucial for, for the spiritual life. And I think that reading the spiritual classics is they're fundamentally, uh, they just don't work reading them through a Molinist lens. And ultimately I think that's why this is an important topic, right? The speculative points are important. It's important to know more about God, but, um, this is the one I think that, that, allows us to make sense of our, our pursuit of holiness. And that's ultimately, of course, what's most important. Very well said. And if I can just add on to that a little bit, I've been reading through the book of Job recently. I'm doing the the Bible in a Year program with Ascension Press, which I highly recommend to all of my listeners. And, you know, I've read the book of Job before, but I'm, I'm reading it with a different eye this time around. And these ideas come through very strongly there as well. And in so many of Job's laments, that's exactly what he's saying, right? He's not using the metaphysical terms that we are in this conversation, but but what he's saying is, look, you know, what is man except except what you decree and what you create? And what does he have except what you give him? And what does he not have except what you take away? Everything we have is from God. Everything that that, um, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And so that's been a beautiful reflection on some of these realities as well. And the only other thing I'll say on this is, I think, to your point about growing in humility, right? God has chosen to richly bless us with this. And if we recognize this idea that is found in the angelic doctor and many of his disciples following him, uh, and and further, further back than that, right? St. Augustine, for example. But this idea that we have been predestined, as St. Paul says uh, in the in the epistle to the Romans, um, that we've been chosen by God and that we are being sanctified by God. That's such a beautiful thing to reflect on. Um, and it's also important to remember that, that our will is being preserved, that God loves us so much that he does not violate our will, but he loves us so much that he will infallibly move our wills so that we uh, can come to that universal end attain the beatific vision and participate in the divine life of the Trinity. So, so it's, it's an absolute beautiful thing, absolutely beautiful thing when you really reflect on it, despite the fact that it can seem esoteric at first glance. Yeah, I just, I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the points I try to make in the end of my book is just that, um, when you are struggling with sin to be able to call out to God and know that God can move our will and draw us to the good. And it's no problem for him. It's, it's, it's the easiest thing in the world. That's a source of real hope. Wow. If I have to sit there and struggle with sin and think there's something within me that God can't change, that God can only petition me or move the circumstances, but it really finally falls back upon me. That's when I would start to despair. Knowing that God can move my will and wants to move my will toward the good, I can just abandon myself to his grace and go, do it for me. And I think that that is what all the saints are united in, is they finally come to a point where they say, I can't do this under my own power at all. You have to do it within me. Beautifully said. And we will end there, Dr. O'Neill. But thank you so much for coming on this episode of Credo Catholic. I really enjoyed diving into all these ideas with you. Uh, and I love your reflections there, especially at the end about, about why this matters to us. To my listeners, if you, if you want to read more about this, pick up Dr. O'Neill's book. Again, it's Grace, Predestination, and the Permission of Sin a Thomistic analysis published by the Catholic University of America. 
very, very good book. And I think it's written, I mean, it's an academic book, um, it, but but it reads, I think, in a very accessible way. So so if you're just a lay person who doesn't have a, a schooling in these, Dr. Neil does a great job at the beginning, just breaking down a lot of the, the sort of metaphysical concepts to help us understand. So highly recommend that book. Uh, go ahead and pick up a copy. Uh, if you want to reach out to Dr. O'Neill, you can reach out to me, Zach, Z-A-C, at CredoCatholic.com, and I'd be happy to, to, uh, to put you in touch or pass any questions along. So please do that. Uh, until next time, God bless you. Thank you.